0: Hey, everyone, before we get to today's episode, I wanted to share what I think is a pretty exciting announcement. We are opening up our Rival AMP community. So some of you listening have been part of AMP from the beginning of the company. It has been our small, very small friends and family community around Rival where we post updates, ask for feedback, kind of share what's going on in the business. But actually, we think there's a lot more potential as we've grown, as our community has grown, as we've met more of you to actually build and scale a proper community within Rival Amp. So what Rival Amp is going to be is it's going to be a community for challenger marketers on WhatsApp. We're going to share ideas and observations from the challenger marketing world that we see and ask everyone to contribute to that, share about challenger brands, marketing news, industry events, job opportunities, ask for feedback and input, use each other as a sounding board. We think it's going to be really great. So if you are interested in joining and are not already a member, please either reach out to me if you know me or go on over to our website, wearerival.com, and you can apply from there. This is free, but we do want to make sure that we're adding people that are really interested and can really add value. That's it. On to the episode.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, about 80% of our um, orders are repeat. So we really want to think about, um, ways that we can show up better for our customers be even more useful to them how can we um, serve more customers more often for more occasions more recipients and, and really drive that frequency over the long term um and so where we see the big opportunity is from shifting from being um a flower gifting brand to a broader gifting brand um and so we have spent a lot of time over the past sort of six, nine months thinking about, okay, well, what is it about our existing kind of flower gifting proposition that people really, really value? And how can we translate that uh, into broader categories that will fuel that, that business growth for, for the next decade?
0: I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch. Bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains. Rewriting the rule book from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, great episode for you today with Charlotte Langley, who is the chief customer officer at Bloom & Wild. If you live in the UK, I'm sure you know about Bloom & Wild. They pioneered the letterbox, mailbox, flower delivery category. Uh, as a challenger 10 years ago, and now as a true rival within the category with 20 million deliveries to date, 100,000 five-star reviews, they've raised 140 million in venture funding, have started to make some acquisitions. So they're definitely making that pivot and evolution from a challenger brand to a true rival. So really interesting conversation with Charlotte, starting with talking about her role as chief customer officer and how that's set up. I think there's some interesting angles and takeaways for people from that, and just the role of marketing within an organization and also how to structure the marketing teams. And then we go into really a two-part conversation, the first being about what are the principles and practices that have driven the success of Bloom and Wild over these first 10 years. And how is Charlotte and the executive team thinking about the strategy and the roadmap for the next 10 years? So I'll leave you to it. Please enjoy my conversation with Charlotte Langley. Hey Charlotte, thanks so much for making the time. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. How are you?
0: I am good. I really like your background. I know Viran was commenting on it before we press record, but for those who are listening and not watching, you have a very on-brand background with the pictures or those prints. those are just pictures of flowers, right?
1: Yeah yeah they're just pi- they're pictures of our, of our uh, beautiful bouquets
0: behind me. amazing. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation as I said when I reached out, Bloom and Wild has been on our wish list for a while but also personally, I've been a customer in the past. My sister actually uses you for all of her kind of occasions and gifting. And I can say this because this episode won't come out until after the event, but I actually just bought a subscription, a gift subscription for our operations director because it's her birthday coming up next week. So I've had a lot of firsthand experience with the brand and business. All right. So let's get into it. We have a lot of amazing topics to cover from our prep call last week. But to start off the conversation, the question that we ask every guest what is one challenger brand that you're very passionate about right now and why?
1: So I am currently pregnant. So uh, looking for nice drinks is a real passion. Um, I would normally have uh, a glass of wine or two, which is uh, one of the harder elements of uh, of being pregnant, not to be able to enjoy that with friends. So I've been looking for um, you know, proper grown-up drinks that aren't too sweet. And there are obviously loads of brands now doing... Um, Non-alcoholic spirits, but I really love one called Pentire. Um, it's a, a brand which um, is kind of inspired by the sea, so it's all about coastal living, and they use kind of plants and botanics from that grow uh, around the sea. I think it's a Cornwall, Cornwall-based brand, um, and it tastes amazing. They, uh, it's a really you know grown-up looking product. The branding is beautiful. They have a lovely brand story good sustainability credentials and, you know, it's the closest thing I'm going to get to Negroni for a while. So uh, I'm feeling pretty passionate about that.
0: Well, first and foremost, congratulations. Um, And also I'm fascinated by the non-alcoholic adult beverage category. I don't even know what they call it, but obviously you see all this non-alcoholic beer. I think I've even seen non-alcoholic wine at times. And for me personally, I mean, obviously, you know, I don't have the situation that you do, but I'm like, I'm not sure I really see the point, um, but it's exploding. Clearly, there's demand. Clearly, there are people who, for whatever the situation or whatever the need is, I see a lot of advertising for non-alcoholic beer that's kind of focused around have a beer but don't regret it tomorrow or don't have to sacrifice tomorrow or things like that. So I think academically, as a marketer, it is a fascinating car- category.
1: And I I mean, I would genuinely have one of these you know, um, non-alcoholic spirits like midweek you know in place of a gin and tonic or something like that just because you don't really need that on a wednesday but you kind of you get that feeling there's like something cultural about wanting to mark the end of your day with something that's a bit out of the ordinary not just a glass of water so i think there's a there's a real role for them so yeah it's a exploding space as you say
0: cool All right. So let's dig in to Bloom and Wild. And we're going to start by talking a little bit about, you know, you're celebrating your 10-year anniversary as a business. Obviously, you've covered a ton of ground from where you started. So I do want to talk about that journey as a successful challenger brand and how the company has done that and how you've contributed to doing that over the three years that you've been there. But the place I want to start, because I think it's important to give the audience some context, is can you just give an overview of your role? So obviously, chief... Chief Customer Officer, which is something I think you see more and more of. But your setup overseeing most of marketing, but not all of marketing, and also some other remits within the business, I think is really interesting and important to understand before we go into the story of the brand and business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Chief Customer Officer, and I suppose uh, I see myself as as kind of the champion of the customer and and their experience and in the business and at exact level. Um, and so you know, I'm always asking why would they care about whatever this thing is that we're planning to do? How can we be more useful to them? Um, How can we um, be more compelling and like a more welcome part of their life? So at a kind of top line level, that's that's why I'm here. Um, And yeah, in terms of the teams I look after, so I look after all of brand, creative, comms, um, our physical product range and our customer insights as well. So it's, it's quite broad it's really it's not just about making ads or um, you know designing emails it's really about compelling that crafting those sort of compelling brand experiences um and often I whenever I was doing an intro to my teams yesterday for some new startups and I always say to them but it's about doing that to drive business growth because I think sometimes when people hear that you cover creative they're like oh cool the coloring in department and that's just not at all what we do so we really think about shaping the experience for the customer um and I think it's it's really important that we've connected those teams together to ensure that you get that sort of seamless innovation. So there's, you know, no point having uh just our range team work on a product collaboration because then the communications won't won't match up or just our brand team say we want to partner with this brand and not trying to connect it to our product. So and not having any insights around that. So we can really build um you know, that's one example of, of product collaborations where we can build that based on insight. It can be beautifully designed and packaged, and, and really creatively communicated as, as well. So, what I don't look after is the uh, day-to-day performance marketing and the trading. Um, and I suppose my background is not in growth marketing, as, as uh, so many tech, te- tech sort of enabled businesses, uh, you know, focused on. And so, what this kind of allows is that there's like some some teams which are really focused on that, and a lot of their, of course, they're looking at long term strategic things. But it's it's you know big focus on the day to day. Whereas my teams can be thinking longer term; they can be thinking about those longer term strategic goals for the for the business and the, for the brands that we have. So it, it works quite nicely, and of course, we're super connected with those those teams which are more based around trading and delivering the the numbers day in day out. Um, And we produce a lot of creative for those teams as well. But um, I think having this sort of holistic view of like, how does the customer experience everything that we offer them makes it much more seamless.
0: So one of the things that I think about is I think that the companies that are more long term oriented are always in a better position to win. Because what that means is that you're more focused on delivering on the needs of the customer, even if it doesn't deliver on the needs of the business immediately or short term. But of course, particularly as companies scale, there starts to be more of a focus on the bottom line. There is that balance of delivering the numbers while building the runway for future growth. So do you, how does that dynamic work? Do you own a revenue target within the business? Does that sit with someone else?
1: Yeah, so I suppose because I sit on the exec team, like we all collectively own our business targets as six of us on that team, all the kind of chief, everybody for the various areas. And so, um, whilst it's not like you know my PNL to own specifically or my number, I think there's that collective ownership, and like we need to make decisions on our strategy together that are going to um, prioritize the right things. Right now, our focus is very much on profitability, but we're in a fortunate position whereby we can we've got a very very strong core cool business in the UK where we can reinvest into future growth engines, whether that be. New initiatives for the uk or um into our international markets and brands for example so you're right it's always it's always a balance but i think having a very strong core allows you to also think about investing for the future but if you haven't got your core really solid and got your unit economics really uh working there then you're going to have trouble being future facing
0: yep And so for you, you know, knowing a bit about your background at L'Oreal, you're in the beauty world as a a brand manager, um, which of course within the big CPG businesses has more responsibility than just marketing. But I'm curious, you know, overseeing product, the physical product line and new product development, has that been a learning curve for you? How have you thought about kind of approaching that part of the role? And actually, as part of that conversation... Was it always was the role always structured this way when they reached out to you or you got in touch with them when you started interviewing or was this something that you kind of pushed for?
1: Yeah, so it wasn't structured this way when I started. So it started um, January 2020 and I came in as um, brand and communications director. Aaron actually tried to offer me brand and creative director and I was like, I'm not a creative director. <laughs> I'm not taking that title. Um, so we shaped a new title for me. Um, and then as I've gone along, I've basically collected other teams. So, you know, as is the way in any fast-growing business, things change really quickly. Um, uh, people move around and all of that kind of stuff. So I've kind of gathered, um, started with Brand and & and then I've gathered in um, uh, the uh, insights and the product range part of things over time. I suppose in terms of the, the learning around product range, I... I do think the time, my time at L'Oreal was super helpful here. So whilst I wasn't responsible for product development that was happening in our sort of global hubs in Paris and New York, we were always interacting with them and saying, okay, actually in the UK, uh, we have a gap in our portfolio for an eyeliner that is at, a, at about £5.99 price point and <clears throat> is liquid, not pencil and whatever. So it gets very technical. But so I think I had that, um, mm. I was fortunate to have had that experience. And also, yeah, at L'Oreal, the marketing teams were responsible for setting pricing or recommended pricing. So, uh, and that is now um something which we've been doing a lot of focus on over the past year at Bloom Wild. And so again, I kind of had that experience of recommending a price based on um what a customer is prepared to pay and what else is in the market and agreeing that with finance based on, you know, what gross margin that's going to give you and all of that kind of stuff. So there were there are of course new elements, but I'm I'm always look back on that time um, at a big kind of CPG company and think it really set me up well because as you say, they do give you a broad broad remix. So even if you're not completely expert, you've got enough to draw on.
0: Yeah, I, I really agree. And that's come up in a lot of the conversations and interviews that I've done with CMOs or CXOs that have come from kind of particularly the big CPG background, the, the Proctors, the Unilevers, the PepsiCo's, the L'Oreal's. Um, and I do think that's important for people as they're thinking about building their marketing career. You need a broad base, whether that is more commercial experience, more product experience, widening that foundation you know, I don't know the sequence of when these episodes are going to come out, but the last recording I did was with Martin Lindstrom. Um, and one of the things that he's passionate about is kind of the role of the CMO and how it's not respected in a lot of organizations and his big thing. When I asked him, you know, what are, what's the thing to do to be more respected was essentially this, you got to broaden the base of kind of your skill set and your experience to include more of a commercial understanding so that you can bring that to the table. And I think that's, I think that's so key.
1: Yeah, and the commercial understanding is exactly it. And like, I actually started out my career in commercial at L'Oreal. So I was negotiating with like Tesco and, and things like that. So that's that's super important. And speaking the language of uh, everybody else on your, you know, or your board. So, you know, what it, what is the return on what you're doing? And, you know, how are you impacting profitability and margins and et cetera, and, and really trying to bring those things together?
0: And I do think, you know, Sometimes I say the role of marketing is to make the company more customer-centric. I really think that at the C-suite level, it is the CMO's, you know, remit to be the voice of the customer, to bring the customer into the conversations internally. I mean, I think with good and successful businesses, everybody is doing that. But really, the CMO is kind of the bridge between what's happening internally, the value that the product or service can offer, and what the needs are in the market, and how those are changing. And so I think it's really interesting explicitly making that chief customer officer. But I think for people listening, even if you aren't chief customer officer, if you are CMO, or if you are senior marketer, I think what you just talked about and obviously what we're going to get into in terms of how you've delivered on that so far in your role is really is really important. So let's start talking about Blue and the Wild. Um, so 10 years on 20 million deliveries to date, over 100,000 five-star reviews, raised 140 million pounds to date from some of the world's top VCs. So there's a whole list of accolades and stats that I could share, and I'm sure people can look up about the success of Bloom and Wild as a challenger brand. And I guess the broad question, depending on you know, the direction that you wanna take it, is what has, what has contributed to the success? Are there certain principles and practices that you can draw out and share that you think have been kind of those twenty eighty those most important things that have delivered so much of this growth.
1: Yeah, I think if we if we go back to twenty thirteen when when um, Aaron and Ben founded Bloom and Wild, there were really no loved brands in this space, and Google was basically everybody's favorite flower brand because they just went online and typed in flower delivery and kind of hoped for the best. Um, and the, the sort of category MPS was and still is about zero, which is really poor. And so actually what, what we came in and did is said, okay, well, let's just really focus on making this an excellent experience. Because, you know, Aaron, it came from Aaron being like getting on a flight, trying to send some flowers, somebody who hosted him and finding it really difficult to do. Uh, and he just thought like, this is crazy. This, should, this really shouldn't be, be this difficult. And we should be able to, you know, find something that, sh- that is to my taste, to the recipient's taste, feels premium and has a great experience and all of that stuff. So um we obviously started with a big innovation, which was letterbox flowers. And um that really came from an insight around the supply chain, which is that across the world, flowers are actually shipped flat pack. <laughs> so no, uh you obviously when you go to florist you see them in a bouquet but that's not the way that they travel around before they they are made up that way and so i kind of thought hang on a minute maybe there's something we can do here and so we um created the letterbox flowers which did a couple of things one meant that because you're able to like skip a step in the supply chain and we were going direct to growers as well so we actually cut out multiple steps in the supply chain when the flowers arrive they're way fresher and so they last way longer, and so people are always amazed. They're like, "Oh my god, my flowers are still going two, three weeks on from having received them." So that's your first like nugget of, okay, we've really managed to change the customer experience here. But the other thing, and excuse me, that the, um, the letterbox did was actually change behavior or kind of allowed a behavior to scale, which was you didn't have to send flowers anymore for a, like a big flashy, showy gesture. You could just send them, you know, to your best friend as a small birthday gift, or um, to uh, someone you know is having a bit of a tough week, you know, or is not being well. And so this sort of um, just because gifting, we like to call it, we're scaled and changing. And actually, it's very female to female what we do. So I think about eighty percent of our gifting is female to female. So that's very different from uh, a category that was kind of focused on these sort of big romantic gestures, if you see what I mean. So that was the beginning of the story. But as I say, we really obsessed about the details. So um, you know, we've got quality is there, longevity is there, but we also pay massive attention to the unboxing experience and the, the sort of care advice that we give people for their flowers. So everything is comes with a with a care guide which tells you how to get look after them best. We send two sachets of flour food, not one, so that they'll last longer. Just small, tiny things like that, which make a really big difference. And then over time, um, because we have this culture of, well, how can we make this experience better? We really developed, I think, best-in-class customer service. And and we frequently get people writing into us saying how amazing the service has been or tweeting us or whatever. Um, and, and that is powered by data and I think that is different from what uh, many kind of brands in this space are able to do so we're constantly collecting anything that we comes in through our customer we call it customer delight rather than customer service so it gives you a sort of sense of culturally how we think about it um so we're constantly collecting that data and it goes through something called qualbot and we are able to see patterns and be like hmm, okay this one bouquet There's a problem, there's like a consistent recurring problem with these stems or something. So we can go into the warehouse and be like, pull them out, change something and make sure the experience is better for the next customer. Equally, like around Mother's Day, we track all of our, this sounds kind of crazy and I couldn't believe it when I joined the company, but we track with our couriers where the delivery is and we can spot where we think it might be late. And if we think it might be late for a big occasion like Mother's Day, we just proactively resend it and we just send them a message saying, hey, we think this, your flowers might be late. We sent you another one. If you get two, no problem, enjoy them both. Um, but it means that that kind of generosity and it powered by being really on top of the data, people are just blown away by that level of service and that is really like embedded in our DNA as a, as a business. So I think that is, that that's sort of, really step-changing the experience in a category where it was quite um, dated and out of step with what people expect now and especially from online brands was a really important part of the journey and there's loads more I can say but I'm sure we'll get on to this.
0: Yeah and clearly that's been successful as evidence not just in the growth of the business but also one of the stats that you mentioned in our prep call is that 50% of new customers come from Basically, receiving it as a gift and then deciding that they want to send it to somebody else, which I think is amazing as an acquisition channel. I think a lot of businesses would love to be in that spot. I think the thing I'd love to follow up on as a question is going back to our conversation about being more long term oriented, focusing on the customer, drilling down specifically into that customer delight, delighting policy, which I love. And sometimes I think there's so much opportunity just in you know so many industries have such crap experiences where people don't expect they expect the bare minimum and just going a little bit above and beyond or a lot above and beyond as you're doing in many cases can have such a huge impact on people's experience and therefore their you know interest and willingness to repurchase and be an advocate and referrals and all that stuff but i guess specifically with like the delighting policy or or resending flowers Do you, is there like a process around that? Like, do you have a budget that you draw down from for resending flowers or surprise and delights to customers? Or do you just have the remit and I guess buy-in from the CEO and the organization to just be like, I think this is the right thing to do?
1: Yes, it's kind of a mixture. We obviously do budget what we think our resends uh, will amount to, but the customer delight teams are empowered to make that call. Um, and obviously there is, you know, uh, we have things in place, which sometimes people call us. So for example, because we send the the flowers very fresh, they are, um, more often than not in bud when they first arrive. And so sometimes people can say, oh, my, you know, my flowers don't look great. And so we'll, first of all, obviously give them some advice and say, oh, don't worry, pop them into water in the morning. They'll, they'll start to bloom. And more often than not, everyone's like, oh, you were absolutely right. They look beautiful today. So, you know, there are obviously things in place to make sure that we're, we're only, you know, refunding, resending when it's really necessary. But I I do know that, uh, that I mean, I do, I sit on the customer, we all as a company get off our customer direct channels at Mother's Day, for example. So I'll sit there emailing customers who've got a problem and it's really, it's a great way to connect with what's going on. And I never feel like i'm not able to just make the call and you know i clearly have yeah tra- proper training but that's what we're you know told to do is this is a policy if you see a photo you don't think it looks right you you do what you think is the right thing and also you write back to them in a way that you know acknowledges igno- igno- this you know there's no set sort of Um, template clearly we have things to speed stuff up and yes you can copy and paste stuff but we're always asking people to say okay just acknowledge like I'm so sorry to hear that your mums are well of course we'll fix it for you rather than just the standard response so I think yes you empower the the teams but also we look at the you know we have looked in the past at the LTV of this kind of um, policy and it pays back because as you say if you give someone an excellent experience and you turn around a bad experience, there's real long-term business value to that. So uh, there's there's a little bit of like heart and uh, and economics going on there, I suppose.
0: So building on that, actually, because the next thing I wanted to dig into is you've talked a bit now, and we talked a lot in the prep call about um, kind of insights-driven activations planning and the focus on research. And I know I was trying to check my notes. I think, I think there's three people that are full-time dedicated to research within the team, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. And I know that we share a partner in a test in terms of the customer research and how we do it, but to your point of heart and science, one of the other things that you said on our prep call that I really liked was sometimes we just launch it and see what happens. And so. What is the balance for you between being data-driven, asking the customer what they want to see, and being idea-led, coming up with something that you think is right, let's just ship it and then figure it out or evolve it from there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we, we always try and do some due diligence, but you you're never, especially when you're like evolving a product range, you, a customer is hardly ever going to be able to tell you exactly what they want. <laughs> so you have to make something and then see if it's what they want. So um, I suppose like a good example is um, around, so last autumn I challenged the team, you know, we had cost of living was really top of everybody's mind, still is for, it, for for many, many people. And I wanted us to have a product offering that was below 20 pounds. And so the team managed to turn something around in about four weeks clearly we didn't have time to do a lot of research there but also like do you need to do a lot of research there you know you need to get a cheaper product in your range you know kind of how much you can afford to give people at that price point so let's just get something out and see how it does and actually there uh you know as I say we got this product live within about four weeks um and we've seen that it is um you know driving conversion in a group where we would have lost that conversion previously, and so we've obviously tested that, and then we've made some refinements. You know, we had um some issues with one of the like colorways; the, the stems weren't quite right, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the most important thing was to have something there so that we could try and and sort of bank that conversion opportunity and and make sure that we were were hitting that and not losing customers at a time where price is really important. So sometimes I think you just know that you need to do something, and it's you know when it's launching a product like that, it's very easy to then quickly optimize it afterwards and in fact we've then sort of seen other brands copy and 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 launch their own versions and things like that so you have to continually evolve
0: continually evolve and that involves both doubling down on what's working but also kind of pulling back on what's not and so I did want to touch on um I know that you or bloom and wild had expanded into retail into bricks and mortar which of course a lot of e-commerce c-to-c businesses are doing and you know, a lot of the headlines in industry would say that that's kind of the playbook now, post iOS 14 and all that. You need both. You need to be omnichannel. But for Bloom and Wild, so you had a couple of partnerships. You were in Sainsbury. and since then, you've actually pulled out. So I'd love to talk about that as an example of how you tried something and ended up actually cutting it or moving away from it.
1: I think this is all about being really clear in your objectives or something. So for us, Sainsbury's felt like a really good way to build... Um, that brand awareness in a physical environment um good way for us to be able to have a physical manifestation of the brand without having to open our own stores um good demographic overlap etc cetera, etc cetera. and um in many ways like it 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 worked well and it um gave us we had amazing presence in the store it looked it looked great um and we did see we were tracking um uh, what was the impact on awareness? And we were seeing halo uplifts in, in the areas around the stores. But um, there were also difficulties, right? So uh, it's a supermarket who, that the supply chain and the stock there is really challenging. And having, because we had our brand name all over it everywhere, for us it was really important that it looked great at all times. And it was just so difficult to make sure that that happened. Um, because you you know, you're relying on store staff to put the right bouquets in the right buckets and you know, on this on the bouquets to arrive at the right time so that they're always full and et cetera, et cetera. So that was that was difficult. And then we saw kind of over time also that those halo effects on awareness were tailing off because actually, yes, when you go into a store, lots of people go in and they see you and they're like, Oh gosh, okay, that's interesting, blue and wild. But actually, if you think about where you do your supermarket shop, you tend to do it in the same store every week, right? So then you, the the amount of new people who you're reaching over time um, kind of fell off, and also it it in you know for us we had to have different operational and and uh, some tech kind of integrations as well. Which if you add all those things together and you think about okay, well what's the benefit we're getting as a as a as a business and uh, how much kind of time and effort and focus is it taking, and do those things stack up? At the time we made the decision to pull out, they they didn't quite stack up in the way that we had thought they would. And so it made sense for us to, um, especially at a time where we wanted to focus, we knew we needed to head towards profitability. We just wanted to be focused on the most impactful things. And that was one of the things that, that was less impactful than some of the other things. So we pulled back. It's not to say that we wouldn't do something like that again. It's just that this phase of the business, it wasn't the right thing to continue spending a lot of, or dedicating a lot of team time to.
0: So let's shift gears. We've talked about the first 10 years. What about the next 10 years? How are you thinking about evolving the brand, the marketing function, the product roadmap to continue on this journey towards what we would call becoming a rival brand? So a challenger, someone who's trying to disrupt and change a category and a rival brand is one who successfully has. So how are you thinking about that at a high level?
1: Yeah, so I think you know about 80% of our um, orders are repeat so we really want to think about um, ways that we can show up better for our customers, be even more useful to them. How can we um, serve more customers more often for more occasions, more recipients, and, and really drive that frequency over the long term? Um, and so where we see the big opportunity is from shifting from being um, a flower gifting brand to a broader gifting brand um and so we have spent a lot of time over the past sort of six nine months thinking about okay well what is it about our existing kind of flower gifting proposition that people really really value and how can we translate that uh into broader categories that will fuel that that business growth for for the next decade and there are a few things that um have come out of our research here, which is quality is so key, and uh, we are really trusted for that. And that we've got some really nice. I was watching some videos that the research team uh, recorded last week with customers who were just so clearly able to articulate the kind of quality they would expect from us, and therefore the trust that that drove, so that they would come to our site and say, "Yeah, I, I know if you're selling me something else, like chocolate brownies or um, a candle." that you will have really thought about what is on your site because you've always done that and I've never had a bad quality gift from you. So so that quality is really, really key. From the product to the kind of unboxing experience that I talked about earlier, um, you know, even just the texture of the ribbon, the little stickers, all of that sort of stuff is really important to people. Um, The other thing is that we know that... Uh, our range is seen as unique so it's one of our strongest brand perceptions currently and so that's really helpful for us to say okay we need to um think how we translate that as we expand um and so we think about how we can bring in maybe small maker brands uh, that people can't necessarily shop easily elsewhere that has that kind of uniqueness to it um alongside some some, some brands that they'll and then there's all of the stuff which is um, a bit more practical, but we have to kind of extend through. So how quick and easy it is to order, like the outstanding customer service we've been talking about, the fast, reliable delivery, all of that extends. So, so that's really where we're, um, we've, we're focused at the moment is on thinking about how we can progress this evolution. Um, and we've been testing since last September, Um, And it's really encouraging that, you know, and it's great to see that the, um, in our follow-up research, that these things are kind of stacking up to be true. So we've seen that people who um, would repurchase a a non-flower gift are absolutely identifying those like aspects of the proposition that we thought were important as the reasons that they would buy again. And and 93% of them said that they're, you know, very likely or likely to buy again. So I think... That is a um, really encouraging start. There's loads to do, not least thinking about the brand shift, because at the moment, you know, it's very focused on our existing customers, and we're going to need to start to be known for more than just flower gifting. And that's quite a big challenge that uh, is on my plate as as we go into the next decade.
0: And so the product side of it is one thing. What is the natural extension, looking at the customer research, et cetera. But on the brand side of it, how are you thinking about evolving, or as I think you put it in our prep call, stretching the bloom and wild brands to have a permission, have the permission to be not just a flower business, but an overall gifting business?
1: One of the things that's really important here is that we, um, back in 2020, we did a sort of full rebrand and positioning piece of work, all done over Zoom during COVID, which was its own challenge. Um, and so we got really clear on who we are and developed um, a brand platform with our creative agency partners, The Or, um, which is Care Wildly. And the, the insight is really like care is what drives this category. And that care between largely female to female recipients, as I mentioned, it's not soft and sweet as it is um, often portrayed. It's it's strong. It's active, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of emotion in there that you can play with. But because we've got this care wildly platform, there's a lot. It's a lot easier for us to stretch because what we've gone gone for there is like what is the like underlying emotional space that we're in and the insight for this category rather than product attributes. Do you see what I mean? So we we're fortunate that we'd already done that work. And so I can see how our creative, for example, and our communications are going to be able to evolve under that platform because uh, the the sentiment is not going to change. So we're very focused in our brand communications about, you know, why are you sending? What are you trying to communicate? And that will stretch whether it's flowers or a candle or chocolates or whatever it might be. So that I think is, is really important because if we were still in a space where we were just talking about the benefits of like flowers that go through the letterbox, the stretch would be much harder. So having done that groundwork as to like, who are we, why do we exist? Why are we important for people? What is this, what is this emotional kind of transaction that we're supporting? that gives us the basis from which to to grow and stretch.
0: Yeah. And I think the big kind of takeaway from me in this conversation is it sounds like everything that you're doing and driving as the chief customer officer is very intentional from a business standpoint, but it's very customer-centric and everybody says that, but the way that you've talked about everything in terms of the past and the future has been starting with an understanding of the perception and needs of the customer that you're trying to reach, and then finding a way to have that meet with what you want to do as a business. So that's going to be the the thing that I walk away from this conversation with. Charlotte, are you up for a quick lightning round before we let you go?
1: Yes, I absolutely can do. All
0: right. So what is the biggest win that you've had recently?
1: So as a company, it's getting profitable in our first half of the year really big achievement for everybody um and for my team and their contributions to that like we've done some great work around um value-based pricing and um brand partnerships driving up our aov so i can really see how they're contributing to that so that's feels like a big a big win there are loads but that feels like a really important one
0: and what about the biggest struggle you've dealt with recently
1: I mean, it's just always prioritizing all of the great ideas, all of the things you want to improve and make better. You just cannot do it all at once, um, so it's a continual struggle. And I, uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of CMOs will relate that you, you kind of want to overachieve, and you just have to sometimes be like, no, let's just focus on these things.
0: I'm sure, everybody can relate to that. What is the best marketing resource that you found recently?
1: So I. Um, I got added to a sort of CMO WhatsApp group chat thing a few months ago. And actually that's great because... It's
0: not ours, is it?
1: <laughs> it's not yours, Maybe I'm sure yours is also amazing. But I, that's very helpful because it's just constantly like questions that you you might not even be thinking about, but just spark something or very easy to get a little bit of um, perspective on things. So f- for me, more than any kind of tool or program or you know whatever that that sort of peer network support is really helpful
0: yeah so viren we're gonna have to do some competitive research about this other cmo whatsapp <laughs> group but just to build on that i mean ours kind of started organically we had started a group that was and obviously a bit of a plug for app for people listening if you haven't already joined but we started it originally as just kind of like close friends and family of the business people that we wanted to keep up to date about how things were going and it just you know start, like naturally people started asking questions and sharing resources. And so we we're like, Hey, I think we've got something here. Um, and so we opened it up a little bit, but I think with WhatsApp, cause we're all part of different WhatsApp groups, it needs to be pretty cultivated and curated and beyond about 150 people, which is where we're at. It gets a little bit unwieldy, but I've totally found, and I know I've heard from other people that are in it, that that just kind of peer share conversation uh type of community is is really valuable so shout out for amp and shout out for your other cmo community as well um all right what is the biggest lesson that you've learned in your career
1: i think it's got to be do the scary stuff um you know you asked me earlier you know have, had i sort of done this uh, some of the aspects of this role before and in some ways i had but actually my role changes every six months. Basically, uh, there are so many things I've done in the last three and a half years I've never done before. So you just have to back yourself and be like, I've worked it out before when I didn't really know what I was doing. And it feels a bit scary, but we're going to work it out. So do the scary stuff. You always find a way.
0: Like that. And lastly, and most importantly, what's one thing people should do differently after listening to this episode?
1: Well, I think it's, it's, Maybe around that brand stretch piece. So think about how well your brand is set up to stretch. Um, because once you've nailed your your current proposition, your current offering, you've got your product market fit, that's where you're going to have to go next. So how well is it set up to stretch? And as I say, you need to get beyond those first kind of um, attributes that are important to the, the start of your success in order to create a platform to move forward from.
0: Charlotte? Thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed this conversation. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.